Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast brought to you by CJP Economics, a collaboration between Jim Power and Chris Johns, where we discuss the intersection between politics, finance, and economics. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found at our Substack website, and that Substack site also contains our extensive body of written work. Thanks for listening and reading. If you like our work, please share with your friends and sign up to our newsletter. Chris, good afternoon. Hope all is well. Um, We have, over recent podcasts, had many discussions about inflation and about the outlook for interest rates and so on. And um, every week that passes now seems to bring up some new developments in that front. And I think this week will stand out as quite a significant week in that context, because today, for example, we had a Fed official, James Bullard, commenting that he's expecting the initial interest rate increase in late 2022. But earlier this week, we had the policy meeting of the Federal Reserve. And um, the, uh, I suppose the, 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 the statement following that meeting and the press conference have certainly upped the ante a little bit in the sense that the Federal Reserve still believes that the uptake, the surge in inflation reflects transitory factors rather than something more permanent. But having said that, they have revised up their inflation expectations significantly, and they're now expecting a 3% inflation rate on their favoured measure by the final quarter of this year. And just three months ago, they were talking about a 2.2% rate. So a pretty significant upward revision to inflation forecast. They've also revised up their forecast for GDP growth from 65 to 7% this year. And the market interpretation, and it's been driven by Fed guidance, is that we will see two increases of 25 basis points in US interest rates during 2023. Um, And Jerome Powell, chairman of the Federal Reserve, 
he commented that the United States was still a ways off from achieving the substantial further progress towards its dual mandate goals that would trigger a tapering of its monthly asset purchases. Typical Fed speak, uh, but what he was really saying is that as far as he's concerned, um, the uptake in inflation is transitory, that there are still issues with the real economy flowing from COVID, particularly in the labour market, and that against that backdrop that the Federal Reserve will continue to engage in quantitative easing. But having said that, uh, definitely there's been another um, change in the dial in terms of um, US inflation and interest rates this week. Um, how do you interpret it? Well, it's been really interesting. I'll come on to what I think in a second, because the, the fascinating response is, or the more fascinating response has been the markets, which was starting to play with this idea before the Fed meeting, because you could see, for example, in US stock markets, the Dow Jones, the S&P, really for now six, seven weeks, they've been going up and down, but not very much. All important bond yields, bond yields determine everything, had stopped going up. And indeed, bond yields were coming down again. So long-term interest rates were beginning to fall in the United States. The commodity price thing that everybody's gotten very excited about, that in certain areas was showing signs of rolling over. Been talking a lot about things like wood or lumber prices, as they're called in the States. And they have rolled over recently. So markets were toying with the idea, what's called the end of the reflation trade, the interpretation that I put on it going into the Fed meeting was that the markets had emphatically and uniformly decided that the inflation problem that we've been speaking about for a long time now, Jim, is temporary. And it believes the rhetoric of the Fed and all the other central bankers that it's just all about reopening economies in the wake of the pandemic slowly coming to an end. Now that the Fed has brought forward its planned interest rate rises, or shall we say expected interest rate rises, to 2023. That seems to have solidified this view in the marketplace that, yep, it's going to be okay. What, what inflation is certainly there in the data at the moment isn't going to last. And one of the reasons, it all gets very circular, I suppose, one of the reasons why it isn't going to last is that the Fed is sooner or later going to be raising interest rates, and it's all going to be pretty benign. So that fall in bond yields continued. Long-term interest rates have continued to come down. Stocks initially, the stock market initially went sideways, but is showing signs of a little bit of weakness right now. And we have big headlines across various media, the end of the reflation trade. So all of the things that were going up, all of the investing styles that were working well for the last few months have all suddenly reversed in the last 24, 48 hours. At one level, I mean, you, this is the answer to your question about what I think. At one level, I just think that, you know, we're looking at noise here, as we always do in terms of short-term market movements. Is there any signal? I think it's interesting that there is now an awful lot of chatter that the reflation trade is over. Because one of the things that it occurs to me, and I wrote a little bit about this the other day for our Substack website, in the context of things changing all of a sudden. The reason why we were worried about, or perhaps still are worried about inflation, and it might be a bit premature to say it's the end of the reflation trade, but the reason why we're saying it, the reason why I was thinking that we may be coming to that point is that the source of that reflation is twofold. One, it's the reopening of economies, and two, it's the Biden stroke Fed stimulus. Both of those things, I would suggest, are not going to happen again, at least the first one, I hope, doesn't happen again, because if we 
reopen economies for a second time now, it'll be because there's been a resurgence and we've had to close them down again. But obviously, at the moment, we hope that the US economy is open and stays open. So that boost, that rubber hitting the road, the initial acceleration isn't going to happen again. Looking at the politics and economics of the policy environment in the United States, the Fed, as we have just discussed, is talking about talking about bringing stimulus to an end. And therefore, I think that that is what we're looking at. So monetary stimulus, the pedal to the metal for money printing in particular, but maybe even those ultra low short term interest rates, we're now seeing on the horizon, the end of that coming. And I think what's happening politically in Washington means that the Biden stimulus, the big, big spending increases are now behind us rather than ahead of us. Biden wouldn't agree. He still has big plans to get through all sorts of infrastructure bills and other spending programs through Congress. But it's getting it through Congress is the issue that's starting to concern me. And I think the Republicans are going to mount very, potentially very effective campaigns to stop him. So if the pandemic reopening stimulus is over and monetary and fiscal stimulus are over, then the sources of the inflation that we've been worried about are over, or at least should now be peaking in the next short period, and will therefore prove temporary. To the point where I would actually wonder whether by this time next year, we aren't back to where we were 18 months ago, and complaining that growth actually is very low. That's a tail risk at the moment. But I think it's well, one well worth thinking about in the weeks and months ahead. So I think markets are being markets and are just flirting with all sorts of different ideas at the moment. I don't know how much which credence we should put on these moves. We'll just have to see what the inflation numbers do over the next while. But I must admit that I, I, I do respect what the markets have done. And I think it's really interesting that we are now actively speculating about the end of the reflation trade. I remember in one of our earlier podcasts, when we started to initially discuss um, inflation, um, I was certainly of a quite a relaxed view. And I was sort of arguing that I felt that once that whole reopening surge had passed through the system, that we would end up back to where we started. In other words, with global deflationary forces dominating from globalization, from, um, you know, downward pressure on wages because of the, the nature of way labor markets are evolving and so on, global competition, all of that stuff. Um, I felt that once we got through the surge from the reopening that we would revert to all of those problems and that pretty much seems to be what the markets are talking about at, at the moment or at least that's how they interpret it but as we've said numerous times during these podcasts um, I think this is a story that we will be um, consistently revisiting at least on a weekly basis um, into the future if you look at what's happening in the euro area uh, the story is definitely more subdued and is definitely behind the curve relative to the United States. Um, the inflation rate um, in May hit 2%, which is just about at the ECB's target. And the core rate, which excludes energy, food, alcohol, tobacco, was at 1%. So a little bit of inflation coming through, but nothing that the European Central Bank will be worried about. And it's interesting to look at, you know, what's happening across the euro area, particularly in the European, the largest economy in the euro area, Germany. Um, you know, we're getting mixed messages out of there. Um, I saw statistics in the last couple of days showing that open, open table 
restaurant bookings in Germany um, went from being 90% below 2019 levels a few months ago to 15% above at the moment. So clearly, as the German economy is being reopened, you know, people are coming back to the restaurants. But then um, there are other figures out showing that the number of flights leaving Germany in early June 62% below the 2019 levels. So there's still, you know, massive problems for tourism, for international travel. And um, it's clear that it is going to take, I think, some time for a semblance of normality to return there. And I, I think the other thing that strikes me about Europe at the moment in terms of these mixed messages about what's happening um, are the European Championships. Um, it is fantastic to see absolutely packed stadiums in some countries. Um, you know, we, we looked at Denmark and Belgium yesterday, for example, a fantastic game. But what really struck me about it was the noise from the crowd. It's so good. But then you have other stadiums, um, the Italian game, the second last Italian game, for example, I think there was about less than 20% of capacity in the stadium. So very mixed things. It's absolutely fantastic to see football returning with crowds and the quality of that football. I tip Aaron Ramsey to get a hat-trick for Wales in, in the next match against a side I've never heard of. I think they're called Italy. Going back to the economics of uh, trade, which we were touching on there, Jim, it's just out of the UK this morning. The Food and Drink Association have reported in the first quarter of this year that uh, exports of food and drink to the EU were down by 46.6%. So those are the troubles that Brexit have caused. They, they really are big numbers for that quite small sector of the economy. Interestingly enough, it was caused, the biggest fall was in cheese exports, where, of course, food standards matter with the, the production of, of goods like that. And so these will be dismissed by the government as teething troubles, but using that metaphor, I think that the kind of teething troubles that this means for some firms within that food and drink sector amount to your teeth falling out. Um, it, it is quite serious. And that certainly that industry association, the Food and Drink Association, uh, would agree with that. But it's consistent with other things that we're seeing. And I think you mentioned the other day about imports of uh, a wider category of food from the UK into Ireland had, had fallen significantly as well. So, yeah, we're just starting, we're seeing the, the, the Brexit effects very much in the data as, as we go forward. COVID corner, Jim, we spoke last time about the way in which the Delta or what used to be called the India variant is now 99% in the UK of UK cases today. And that's a big concern. I worry that what we have here, which is a very, very sharp increase in cases over the last few weeks, people call it exponential growth. People need to understand that when you get 0.001% on your savings, that's still exponential growth, but it isn't very much. The exponential growth that we're talking about here with the virus in the UK is pretty big. It's a big concern. What's actually happening, it's, it appears from the data, is that it's ripping through the age group 10 to 30, people who haven't been vaccinated. It's, it's certainly affecting other groups as well, but it's, it's essentially ripping through dry tinder is the expression I've seen used. And they would typically be, not, but not exclusively, the unvaccinated. So it's a big concern. And the next few weeks will give us more data. But I am rather worried by these developments. Chris, can I just 
intervene there for a second. Um, I heard a public health official here yesterday um, commenting that the while the UK was lauded for the rollout of the vaccine program, that they have made a total that the words he used were bags of their treatment um, and their the, the way in which they've um, tried to control COVID-19. And um, I mean, I, I find that difficult to understand. Could, could you explain, um, as somebody who lives over there, how could you say that the UK government has made a bags of this? Has it? There are several ways in which you could say that. Uh, Dominic Cummings has listed them um, graphically to uh, House of Commons committee a couple of weeks ago and subsequently in various texts and blogs that he's written. The two things out of many that most people would focus on would be the decision initially over a year ago now to lock down was taken too late. And it has often been said that if only that had been taken a week earlier, tens of thousands of lives would have been saved. The second lockdown is subject to a similar criticism by many people that Johnson vacillated and took that decision too late. So locking down too late on two occasions is something that people accuse Johnson of that cost people's lives. The, th- the, the third area of uh, criticism would be over this Delta or what was called India variant in that they were warned about it weeks before they stopped travel coming from India to the UK, putting it on the so-called red list of countries, which basically you're not allowed to come in from, or if you do, you have to do mandatory quarantine. And Johnson wanted a trade deal with India. He was due to visit there himself. And obviously, if India was on the red list, it wouldn't be a good look if the UK Prime Minister nevertheless went there. So the allegation is that he delayed putting it on the red list and allowed thousands of visits from people who had been in India to come back. That just seeded the Delta variant across particularly the northwest of England, for reasons I don't fully understand. And that the reason why the UK has... 99% of its current active COVID cases as the Delta variant is because of that decision, is the allegation. I think there's a lot of truth to that. Therefore, to say that it had made a a bags, I use your quote, not mine, of it, is at least partially accurate. Um, But if that public health official means the whole response, and including the vaccination response, um, I'm not sure that that is a well-founded criticism. There are many aspects of many different countries Uh, health response to this that I think leave a lot to be desired. The UK is certainly near the top of that list. But I could equally ask you, Jim, do you think that the Irish authorities have, you know, from end to end, been great exemplars of optimal pandemic policy response? Uh, Yeah, that's why I brought it up, really, because when I heard those comments yesterday deriding the performance of the UK government in controlling the virus, and particularly uh, the Indian variant, um, I, 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 I was struck by this sort of feeling that they believed they had got it all right and that they were far superior in the way they handled COVID-19 than the UK authorities. Um, and I have to say, that's something you know I don't agree with. Um, I did, as we discussed on this podcast, and we published it on the Substack account, um, I did a report looking at the way in which we've reacted to COVID and the costs of that. So I, I've been very critical of Neffet and the way it has handled it. But I was having a conversation with you this morning and um, I really detected um, a huge level of mystification, frustration, anger. I'm not sure what adjective I should use to describe it about the 
chief medical officers and other NEFID officials' comments about antigen. I mean, the the opposition to antigen um, from our health authorities strikes me as being absolutely mystifying. And I'm asking myself the question, is there some sort of vested interest at work here that is causing this total blindness to antigen? Nobody has ever argued, to my knowledge, that antigen was a panacea, that it was going to solve all the problems. I think it has always been posited as another tool in the armory um, and a very effective tool. And I think you get that strong sense globally um, that antigen is seen as having a place in fighting COVID. But in this country, you know, there is a total, well, from NEFET, there is a total opposition to even consideration of antigen as a strategy. And indeed, we had the spectacle in front of an Oireachtas committee the other day um, of a medical person performing all sorts of weird experiments for her Oireachtas audience, showing how antigen tests can be um, fooled. So I, I find it absolutely extraordinary, I have to say, but probably not as extraordinary as you do, judging from the conversation we had earlier today. Yeah, and that's motivated by a lot of things. I've read a lot about these antigen tests, which are very popular here in the UK. Just as you say about Ireland and elsewhere, nobody here has ever sold them as the panacea. They are seen as part of a broad toolkit, which has many components uh, in fighting this, this awful disease. And I also listened this morning to a podcast uh, from Eamon Dunphy, The Stand, he was speaking to a, an Irish scientist who very politely took on Neffet's stance on antigen testing. And the points he made, I found very compelling. He raised the simple point that you can fool PCR testing as well, for example, if you want to, but why would you want to? Secondly, he said that he indicated, and I hope I'm not putting words in his mouth, that maybe some people don't understand the difference between positivity and specificity. Members of NEFET are very fond of saying that, well, if it's only 50% positive, then it's no good. And that fails to understand the, the vast body of evidence that is around positivity rates. And I don't want to get into maths and maths jargon on, on this, but you do need to understand something called Bayes' theorem and something about uh, conditional probability. And it all depends on how much disease is in the population and a host of other factors. But positivity isn't 50%. The answer is it, it all depends. And much more importantly, and this goes back to that Eamon Dunphy podcast guest, he put it very, very clearly. He said what antigen testing is very, very good at is for detecting, giving you a correct positive result when you are infectious. So obviously when you're infected, but when you are likely to infect somebody else as well. So there's an, a shorter, it has a shorter window of time that it records the positive result for when you have loads of this virus circulating around your system. And the PCR test, the gold standard that we are told, might actually detect some fragment of RNA it's ribonucleic acid it means that you 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 could be well over COVID and you could still get a positive result because there is still a fragment of the RNA stuck up your nose, and that's how sensitive the PCR test is. The the antigen test is not, so you could get a false positive in that sense. But most of the time, some of the time, when you are particularly infectious, this is when the antigen test will catch it. 
So it catches it at a particular po uh, point in time. Um, it's not as sensitive as a PR test. It's not as good as a PCR test, but nobody is suggesting that we give up PCR testing. We simply add this to the toolkit. And you put all of that together with all of the research that has been done on antigen testing. And there are a colossal number of papers, colossal amounts of data being collected. And you wonder two things. Why are they so against it? And B, why do they only grudgingly then say, okay, well, we're prepared to have a look at it, but we've got to run lots of trials. Because all these trials have been done elsewhere. All the data is there, it's published. So they clearly, for reasons best known to themselves, I don't know what they are, don't like antigen testing. These are good people, good scientists who seem to know what they're doing and have all of Ireland's public health at heart. But for, therefore, what I suspect they have done is that they have just made a mistake. We're all capable of those. And they mistakenly have set themselves against antigen testing as a tool in the kit. Because as you say, and they set this straw man up of saying, oh, but, you know, it's not a panacea. And as you say, it's not. No, but nobody in the world thinks it's a panacea. It's just one more tool in the kit. So as you say, it's a mystery. But Ireland, Jim, should be using antigen testing and, and should be using it right now. Yeah, I totally agree from what I understand about it. Um, the chief medical officer um, yesterday in the press conference was advising Irish people who are not vaccinated, um, advising them not to travel overseas this summer until they are fully vaccinated. And there's been a very strong reaction um, to this today. The Irish Travel Agent Association, for example, are arguing that what the advice he was giving yesterday goes against the spirit and indeed the substance of the EU's Green Cert uh, because the Green Cert is designed not to discriminate against those who have not been vaccinated. And in fact, you know, the Green Cert is set up to allow free travel within the European Union and um, it allows free travel provided you are either vaccinated you either have an or a negative PCR test or you have recovered from COVID over the previous nine months. Uh, but yes, the chief medical officer here is flying in the face of all of that and is basically telling people if you're not vaccinated, you shouldn't travel overseas. And um, I, I just wonder how the EU will respond to that again. Well, I think the EU's response will be that Ireland's been ploughing its own furrow on this one for a long period of time. It's had the most stringent restrictions in the world. It seems to want to do its own thing on travel. It's not a member of the Schengen area, so I think the EU will let Ireland get away with it. There might be some quiet backdoor di diplomacy going on saying, look, you really should try and fall into line. But I think the EU have other things on its mind rather than Ireland's slightly strange travel rules. What I would add to your commentary about Ireland's slightly strange travel rules is that that, that that comment about only travel if you're doubly vaccinated fails a simple test of logic because they're also arguing, those same officials, that if you're doubly vaccinated, don't come to Ireland. I'm not allowed into Ireland, um, despite the fact I've been doubly vaccinated for months now. So it's completely inconsistent in terms of policy. The one question I would ask of these officials is, what is the point of getting vaccinated if you don't allow me to do things compared to when I was unvaccinated? Either vaccination gives me the protection that you say it does or it doesn't. And certainly if you are confident that two doubly vaccinated people can travel outwards, 
Why can't I come in? The second thing I would say is that I believe the chief medical officer is also quoted in the press this week as saying that W vaccinated people are essentially virus free now. Again, that raises the question, why aren't W vaccinated people free then to eat inside restaurants and get on aeroplanes? So I think that there is an internal inconsistency that everybody can spot to these policy pronouncements. I think that uh, people need to be more careful about A, what they say and B, the thinking behind what they say indeed indeed and meanwhile you know sporting events and all the rest are being continued to be seriously restricted moving away from COVID Chris um, when you were talking about the UK's response to it um, I meant to ask you the question about the Chesham and Amersham um, local election result in the UK yesterday Um, tell could you tell us a little bit about the constituency and, you know, what its typical nature is. And I suppose most importantly, I mean, it was a dramatic defeat for Boris Johnson. Is this an indication that perhaps um, the tide is starting to turn on Boris and that people are starting to see through uh, the lies that you've spoken a lot about in both written and verbal form over recent weeks of what's going on? I think I'd have to be very careful in answering that question because obviously I know what I'd like to think. And I've got to be careful. I don't come up with some motivated reasoning to um, say that that's what I think, just simply because I like the answers. Uh, Chesham and Amsham is to the northwest of London. It's a commuter sort of area, two towns, two small towns at the end of one of the London's tube lines called the Metropolitan Line. And in one sense, it's appropriately called that. And I'll come back to that in a second. One of the remarkable aspects of that result was that it wasn't forecast by any of the pundits or the polls. It saw a very sharp fall in the Tory vote, an even bigger collapse in the Labour vote. Labour got its smallest by-election result in its history. They got 1.6% of the vote. Now that tells you that there there were lots of things going on, one being tactical voting. All of those Labour voters that came out for them at the general election, the Labour vote essentially went to the Liberal Democrats as a tactic because they knew that every Labour voter knew that it was a wasted vote. Their candidate didn't stand a chance of beating the Tory, whereas the Lib Dem candidate did. So tactical voting, which typically happens in by-elections rather than general elections, was was definitely a factor. By-elections often in the UK throw up surprising results that have no long-term significance I don't think there has been a by-election result in in recent or or any UK history that has ever changed the strategic direction of UK politics, not one that I can remember anyway. Ed Davey, who is the head of the Liberal Democrats, went to the constituency and symbolically bashed a uh, mock wall of blue bricks with a sledgehammer, saying that this is the, the cracking of Boris Johnson's blue wall of southern Tory seats. Boris Johnson's parliamentary majority is made up of the blue seats in the south and the red seats in the north. The red seats used to be Labour seats, of course, for decades, and he he won a lot of them in the last general election, hence his big majority. He's been pursuing since that general election, certainly uh, rhetoric, if not actual policy, consistent with this idea of levelling up. He got those people elected in former Labour constituencies with the promise that he is going to do something for them. Uh, He's done nothing, of course, but uh, he keeps promising. One of the aspects of that rhetoric is that the culture war that was unleashed by Brexit has continued, despite Brexit happening 
and we're all fed up with it now. Everybody in the South, I think, has noticed that this levelling up agenda also includes a lot of rhetoric that disparages people who live in the South. So if you're part of this metropolitan elite that the Tories and the culture warriors keep going on about, this is why I mentioned the metropolitan tube line that Chesham and Amersham is on, these people are, are noticing that they are being disparaged in the rhetoric of, of their government. That they, you know, If you are a graduate, if you are somebody who works in London, let alone live in London, are anything resembling pro-EU or that you once voted remain, you are being trashed by Johnson almost on an almost daily basis. And the suspicion, I think, has grown that maybe levelling up means levelling down the South rather than levelling up the North, and they don't like that. So I think that culture war thing has started to resonate. I think more generally, and this might be motivated reasoning on my part, the constant lying and nonsense that Johnson comes up with might have been a factor. The things that you mentioned, we mentioned earlier on about the way he mishandled aspects of the coronavirus may have uh, may may have been a factor. So I think lots of things were going on. I don't think we should read too much into it. But certainly, I I would say that if this is the first crack in Johnson's blue wall, I would be standing on top of that wall cheering. Okay, excellent. Uh, f- finally, Chris, I think it's just worth updating our listeners on um, an important piece of data released in Ireland this week: house prices, because. As we've argued, and I think it's been demonstrated again in opinion polls here this week, that a solution to the housing crisis will have a, or not, as the case might be, will have a huge bearing on the next general election in this country. And at the moment, there's a lot more confidence in Sinn Féin being able to solve the housing crisis than the current government. And it's been reflected in the opinion polls. And one manifestation of the failure uh, to tackle the housing problem in an effective way is the ongoing ascent of house prices. And in the year to April, national prices are up by 4.5%, um, up by 0.8% on the month, which was the strongest we've seen in some time. Um, Leo Vradker commented in the doll yesterday that prices were still off their peak, and he got derided for this. But he was correct statistically because national average house prices are still 14.3% below their 2007 levels. Um, and in Dublin, they're 19.6% below. Um, but So he was technically correct, but that still doesn't deflect from the fact that from the low point of the market in 2012-2013, national average prices are up by 91%. 99% in Dublin, just over 91% in the rest of the country. So housing is still rocketing ahead in this country, reflecting the basic demand supply imbalance in the market. So, you know, this is obviously an, another story that we will keep coming back to because it's just going to be so fundamentally important economically and politically here in Ireland over the next couple of years. Chris, before I wrap up, I'd just like to um, make one point. Um, following our last podcast where I described those young people in town over the last few weekends as being scangers, um, a, a friend of mine and a listener to the podcast and a very good friend, actually, who I would describe definitely 
of the liberal left persuasion took grave offence at my use of the word scanger to describe those young people. I was not referring to all of those young people. I was referring to those young people who are jumping on the roofs of taxis. And there's some amazing footage doing the rounds here about what happened in Dublin city centre last night uh, with a stand-up row between bar staff and what I would describe as scangers. Um, you know, there's one very graphic image of the guy bursting a bottle off of one of the pub staff members' heads. Um, I mean, I will not apologize for describing that sort of behavior um, as scanger, but I was certainly not arguing that all of those young people that were in town uh, were in there for trouble. They were not, and I can certainly understand why young people want to get out as quickly as they possibly can, but that does not. Um, for one moment condone the sort of behaviour that we've seen from, you know, a significant young number of people. So I just thought I'd um, I, I'd address that particular issue. Good. So listen, yes. Well done. Um, before we go, Jim, I just think we need to say thank you to our audience because this week was a watershed week for the Other Hand podcast because we reached number one for a while anyway in the Irish business podcast charts. So uh, thanks to you, Jim, and thanks to our audience in particular for, for getting us there. See you next time, Jim. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please sign up to our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com. You can download our podcasts on Apple, Spotify, and other good podcast platforms. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.